You watched the fight last night. Oof, was crazy. That's what they told me. I didn't. I missed it. I don't know. Anyways, today it's a great day to be here in the house of the Lord and um, and get to know more about our Lord Jesus and get to know more about the gospel. And that's the greatest fight of all—the one that Jesus fought on the cross for you and me. And the good news is that He won that fight. Uh huh. You know that by knockout. Okay. So today you can trust him, and you can trust on him, and, and you can know that you're a child of God, just like we were singing before. Before we start with the sermon, I invite you to bow, to bow your head. Let's pray for the word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity we have to coming together to learn more about you. Lord, we want to honor your word. Everything that this book says is truth. Everything that this book says is truth about me, about my family, about my city, about my nation. And I pray, Lord, that you bless each one of the words that, we, that you will speak to us today. And that, that we will not be the same after hearing your word. I pray, Lord, that you help us today to, to grasp what you want to speak to us in our spirits. And I pray, Lord, that um, this word will be right now. Our daily bread. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody agree with me? Amen. Amen. So today we are starting a new Bible series. Uh, we just finished our uh, summer series on hearing God. How many of you were here uh, during the summer? Maybe a couple of Sundays. It was great. If you want to go back and listen to the audios, all of them are in the website, nwfchurch.com. You can listen to all the audios from our Hearing God seminar which uh, lasted six Sundays, and today we are starting uh, a Bible series based on the book of Romans. So I'm really excited. Are you excited? This is my favorite book of the Bible. You know, some, some people say that it's the heart of the Bible. You know that the first question that maybe uh, one have when uh, you start to follow Jesus is like, okay, what, which book of the Bible should I start reading first? I'll say Leviticus. I love Leviticus, but no, don't follow my advice. <laughs> Uh, but some people say, I don't know, Matthew, Luke, John. Well, that's all right. But I'll say the first book of the Bible you should read is Romans. And I will explain to you why. Romans. In the book of Romans, you find all the Christian doctrine that we need to know in order to grow in, in Jesus. It's uh, 12 chapters of just doctrine. You will learn about the doctrine of justification. How you are saved. How can you know that you are saved? You can learn about the doctrine of sanctification. How to grow in holiness. How to grow in the Spirit. You can learn about the life of the Spirit. You know, that abounded life that Jesus promised in Romans 8. You can learn that all your sins have been paid. That you are, right now you can live a life free of condemnation. Romans 8, Romans 7. And then in Chapter 13 to 16, it's all practical. It speaks about how we Christians relate to government, if we need to pay taxes or not. Hmm, good topic, eh? Be, be ready for that one, Romans 13. And um, if, how, how we are supposed to relate to one another, right? How to deal with that person that I don't like. Uh, okay, Romans speaks about that. How to, how to be a good husband, how to be a good wife. Romans speaks about everything. So get ready because it's going to be a... A sweet ride. 
while we uh, learn about, about the gospel through the book of Romans. So, in, uh, on October 31st, something is, is going to happen. Not only Halloween, but all over the world we will be celebrating 500 years of pro, pro, um, Protestant reform. The Reformation Day. You know that? Yeah, 500 years. 500 years since we, as uh, the evangelical church, we, we started to believe that salvation is uh, by faith only, not by works. And uh, this cost the life of many people. So that's going to happen in October, October 31st, Reformation Day. And one of the, probably the main guy behind the Reformation was, you know, Martin Luther. Have you heard about him? Come on, show hands. Who was Martin Luther? Martin Luther, this bold Augustine monk that decided to one day, October 31st, go with his 90, 95 theses and nail them there in the cathedral in Wittenberg, Germany, and proclaim that things were changing. This is something I want to tell to you. God is saying today to you, in your life, things are changing. You get it? Amen? You got it? Things are changing. This is something that we will learn through the book of Romans. In our Christian life, God is calling us to renew our minds. God is calling, calling us to transform the way we live through the Word. So Luther, reading the book of Romans, grasps uh, this in the Spirit. And, um, and he wrote those 95 theses and nailed them there in the cathedral to, to say, you know, this is over. I don't want more corruption with the church. I'm done with it. I'm done with religion. I want to live the life of the Spirit. I want the same. And you? Why don't you turn to your neighbor and say, you know, I want to live the life of the Spirit. I'm done with religion. I'm not here to be just a religious person. I'm here to be someone filled with the Spirit. So I'm going to do a a short introduction to Romans because uh, I'm in charge of preaching uh, Romans 1. And before jumping into the, into the Word, we need to know the context of what we will be studying today in the morning. So um, it, I, I'm going to go with you. and we, We're going to learn a little, bit, a little bit of its historical importance for the development of the church. In his, um, uh, in his uh, introduction to the letter of St. Paul to the Romans, written in 1545... This guy, Luther, wrote, listen, this letter, he said, is truly the most important piece in the New Testament. It is purest gospel. It is well worth the Christians, while not only to memorize it word by word, but also to occupy himself with, with it daily as though it were the daily bread of the soul. It is impossible to read or to meditate on this letter too much or too well. The more one deals with it, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. Oh, that's the book of Romans. Look, his words, Luther. But Luther was not the only one who experienced the freedom of the gospel through the book of Romans. The great revivals of the church throughout the ages are directly connected to this book. And I can speak to you about great figures of the church like Augustine, William Tyndale, and John Wesley. All of them were transformed reading Romans. John Wesley is the father of the Methodist Church. And we Pentecostals, we are the descendants of the Methodist movement in England. You know that? So we are here because one guy read Romans and everything changed. It it could happen with you too. If you open your heart to the word today. 
So the, the question is, who founded the church in Rome? Was the Pope? Even though I would love to say it because the Pope right now is Argentinian, but nope. <laughs> nope. It was not the Pope. It was not Peter. Church history is silent on how the church in Rome began. It is most probable that the church began when Jews returned to Rome from Jerusalem after the day of Pentecost. And you can read about that in Acts 2.10. 2, or perhaps the church was established later. It's funny because it was not a church that Paul established. It was not a church that Peter established. Some unknown Christian decided to preach the gospel in Rome. And, and this is amazing. We don't need big names. We need just one big name and the name is Jesus. Do you know? God can use you to change your neighborhood, to change your community, to bring the gospel. Because you will learn today that the gospel is the power of God. So, as time passed, of course, Gentiles in Rome also became Christians. And the Roman historian Suetonius records that Emperor Claudius expelled Jews from Rome in AD 49. This is history. Because of a strife over Christus, he said. Suetonius likely misunderstood the name, so that the dispute probably was about Christus, or Christus in Latin, which is, which is Latin for Christ. Look, everything changed. The gospel was changing society. Now my question is, why the gospel is not changing society right now? Is the fall of the gospel? I doubt it. I think uh, today we need to realize that we need to live the gospel more. And share the gospel more. And know the gospel more. Because the gospel is not just, God loves you, that's it. It's way more. It's power. It's the power of God for salvation. What was the date and place from where the letter was written? Well, Paul wrote Romans from Corinth on his uh, third missionary journey. You can read about that in Acts 20, 1 to 3. Now, what is the theme of Romans? Well, the theme of Romans is the gospel, pure gospel. The revelation of God's judging and saving righteousness in the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the cross of Christ, God judges sin and yet at the same time manifests his saving mercy. That's amazing. And on the cross, Jesus Christ paid the price for all our sins so God's justice could be satisfied. So the cross, in the cross we see God's justice and also God's mercy. God's justice satisfies. And God's mercy being extended to you and me. Paul's desire through the letter of, uh, to the Romans. Number one, to encourage the church in Rome. It's a book of encouragement. How many of us need encouragement? Do you? I do. Come on. I do. Do you think it's, it's easy? Do you think it's easy to be a dad? Or be a husband? Or maybe being a wife? Do you think it's easy to work in the, the same place? Maybe for many years and... I don't know what is your situation there in your workplace. You know, the pressure of co-workers or whatever, or time or society. It's not easy. So we need encouragement. The book of Romans is the book of encouragement. Also, Paul hoped to travel to Rome and then, with the help of the church, travel to Spain to continue spreading the gospel to the Gentiles. That's why he was reading this book to them too, so they can be ready. And Paul was thinking that the church will help him out. Um, um, to go to Spain later, right? To continue preaching the word all over Europe. This guy was amazing. Was amazing. His first letter was written in AD 49, Galatians. 
and he died in AD 68. So we're speaking about what? 20 years of ministry or something? And he preached the gospel to all over Europe. Wow. Wow. Paul used this letter to collect in one volume also his Christian theology. So here begins the challenge right now. Let's start. Romans 1, open your Bible. I hope you brought your Bible. You can open it with me in Romans chapter 1. Or you can open your Bible app. That's all right. Just shut down the notifications. We don't want Facebook to be interrupting the sermon today or Instagram. All right? Romans 1. Let's read together. Verse 1. It says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised before him through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son who was to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we, we receive grace and, and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ so the first point that I want to share with you it has this title you are being called can you say with me I'm being called come on I'm being called come on speak up estoy siendo llamado there you go you can do it in Spanish too Argentinian Spanish with a she llamado um, you are being called my friend you are being called by God himself he's calling your name He's calling you. Oh, that's amazing. That's what Jesus does, you know. He knows your name. He, he went and he looked for apostles, disciples. So he started looking and then he started calling people to come to him. You are being called. Number one, you are being called to serve Jesus. You are a servant of Jesus. That's the purpose of life. You are not here you're not here in this church so God can save you. Can serve, sorry, can serve you. You are here so you have the chance to serve Him. We are here to serve God. That's why we live. It's not the calling of just pastors. It's the calling of all the believers, all the Christians, all the disciples to serve God. So to serve Jesus. Paul uses this verse, verse 1. Just one, to introduce himself to a church that he had never visited and that perhaps knew very little of his life and ministry. And this is the first message that God wants to give you this morning, that you, like Paul, are being called. Perhaps not all of us will make the decision to go, you know, to seminary and dedicate our lives to be pastors and ministers. But yes, we have all been called to serve Jesus and preach the gospel. All of us. Amen? All of us. You have been called to preach the gospel. Paul decided to set the example, and so instead of presenting himself as a doctor in the law, which he was, or as a Pharisee or a Roman citizen, he decided to present himself as a servant of Jesus. Simple. Right now, my friend, we have the option to continue being slaves of our sins, and maybe slaves of our own ego. Or surrender ourselves before Jesus and beg Him to receive us just as His servants. 
And listen to my words. Beg him. Receive me as your servant. Receive me as your servant. I want to serve you. Just like Jesus, we came to this earth to serve God, serving others. How are you serving your family? How are you serving your wife? How are you, are you serving your children? Children, how are, you, how are you serving your parents? How are you serving Jesus in your workplace? How are you representing Jesus to your co-workers or fellow students or family members? How are you serving Jesus to your community? How are you serving Jesus through the church? In verse 1, Paul also states that he had been called to be an apostle. Throughout the letter to the Romans, Paul shows the believers in Rome that they had also been called by God to a holy life. Paul was called to be an apostle to the Gentiles, and Jesus Christ has called you to represent him in the place where he has placed you. And finally, in this very, very first verse, Paul acknowledged that he had been set apart for the gospel of God. This is an interesting word in Greek, aphoriso. Which means, literally, to leave out by boundary, to put limits to something. That's what being set, uh, set apart means. You have been called to, to live a life of holiness. To, to live a holy life. Does that mean that we will be all saints? Could you imagine that? Saint Roger? Saint Wes? <laughs> Saint Kevin? <laughs> no! No, we're not perfect, but we are being sanctified by God every day. And we have been called to, to pursue holiness. So in, in a more general sense, the word for Eastern Greek, these words, teaches us that we as Christians, teaches us that what we must do, what we should not do, what we should avoid, and what we should be willing to sacrifice. You know? You don't need, like, you know, being called, you know, call the pastor every time that you need to take, to make a decision. You know? Hey, pastor, should I go to a bar or not? What you think? <laughs> Is that a saying or not? <laughs> hey, pastor, should I, I don't know. And you can, you can name it. Can I cheat on my wife? Things like that. You need to pursue a life of holiness. I need to, to pursue a life of holiness. To be holy, mine. Heart, mouth, actions. That's the gospel. Then, in this sense, the word gospel ceases to, just, ceases to be just a message. Gospel is not a message that we must preach. Gospel, it's our lifestyle. The way we live and behave. Our unique way of thinking and perceiving the world. That's the gospel. But, to, uh, uh, to what else... Have we been called? Okay, number two, verse two to six. You can read it later again. We have been called to a relationship with Jesus. The Lord expects from us obedience and closeness, union with him. In verse two through five, Paul states the reasons why we should surrender our lives to the Lord. And this is amazing because I love this. The way he, he describes Jesus in just the beginning of the letter. He's not speaking about himself. He's all about Jesus. All about Jesus. He's not showing credentials. I'm Paul, the apostle, the preacher of preachers, the prince of the gospel. No. 
I'm a servant of Jesus. And this is Jesus. He says that Jesus is the fulfillment of the scriptures. He says that he, Jesus was declared by the Father, the Son of God, not only through His infallible holiness, but also through His resurrection from the dead. Go and find other human beings that have resurrected from the dead. Other religious leader, other, sorry, other, other religious leader, you would not find anyone else. Jesus is the only one. Buddha died, Muhammad died. Jesus is the only one. The resurrected from the dead. He's the only King of kings and Lord of lords. He's the Messiah, our Savior, our Lord. Then he says, because of this, he, Jesus, is our Lord. And the Father has called us through him to enter into his covenant of grace. All these reasons lead us to surrender our lives and pursue what verse 5 says. The obedience that comes by faith. See? It's not works. Let's do works. Let's try to be holy on our own so we can be saved. No, you are saved, so now you can work out your salvation. Now you can obey God through your faith, through the Spirit. Number three, we have been called to a relationship with one another. And in verse 7 to 13, Paul speaks about the church. And, and he talks about how they, they should relate to one another in Rome. It was hard for them. It was a church that was com uh, composed by Jewish uh, Christians and Gentiles. So all the Jewish uh, Christians, they came to faith with all this legalism in them. And, uh, you know, uh, keeping this, the, the, the Saturday, the Shabbat. And, you know, all those uh, uh, dietary rules and everything else. And they, the, the Gentiles, on the other hand, they were like, Woohoo! Let's party! You know, life is, you need to live it to the fullest. That was the gentle thinking. All pleasure. That's called in Greek hedonism. That's how they live. So it was a clash of cultures in church. So here's Paul bringing union. And you know what united us? Only the gospel. Because we are different. Even, even right now in church, we have people from so many Nations, Canada is this is like this, right? Diversity. So, look at this. Even right now, among all the clashes of, you know, ideologies in the states, and I, I, I saw some protests in Vancouver, and you know what is going on, right? With the immigration and all these movements, you know, white supremacy. Let's let's say whatever. The only thing that can bring union, uh, unity, closeness. To human beings, without matter of race or color, is the gospel. It's the gospel. It's the only thing. That's the solution. That's the answer. So, um, in verse 7 to 13, Paul speaks about this. We need to have a relationship with one another. Okay? Can you turn to your neighbor and say, you know, I'm your brother. Okay? Or your sister, if you're a female. Okay? <laughs> I'm your brother. You know? Aren't you happy that I'm your brother? That's a good thing, right? If the believers in Rome were able to grow in their union with Christ, then they will be able to grow in their union with one another. You want to grow in your marriage? You know, you, marriage counseling is all right, but you need the gospel. That will help you. This is God's call to all of us to put aside our personal differences and then understand that God loves, all, loves us all equally and that He has called us 
all to be his holy people. All of us. So if you are here, you're here to listen to this. You are important before God. When we grow in our relationship with one another and in our commitment to the church, then we can expect the following results. Verse 8 says, Romans 1.8, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. Wow. That's a big testimony. So I want to tell you this, just like Paul said to Romans, someone right now is giving thanks to God for your life. You know that? Someone is saying, oh Lord, thank you for Jocelyn. Thank you for Babona. Someone is thankful because, because of you. So, someone, someone is thanking God for your life. Pastor Roy is thanking God for your life. I'm thank, thanking God for your life. And then we see this great testimony of the church. It says, the great testimony of the power of the gospel that the world longs to see in us. You know what it is? It's not the story of our success. But the story of how our faith has always helped us to overcome all our failures, sufferings, and disappointments. That's your testimony. How you went through the storm. And you came out victorious. That's your testimony. It's not, you know, all the, all the success, whatever. We're speaking about the church in Rome. They were facing oppression and persecution all the time. New emperor. All right, probably this guy doesn't like Christianity neither. We need to get out. That was Rome. But they endured in their faith. In the church, there will always be someone praying for you too. You know that? Amen? Are those good news? Aren't you happy about that? Someone is praying for you. Amen? Someone is praying for you. We pray for one another. That's, we, we, we see this in the very beginning of the church. They were praying for one another. So... Uh, so we can trust this. In verse 9 and 10, it says, God, whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of His Son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now, at last, by God's will, the way uh, may be open for me to come to you. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once says, Where a people prays, there is the church, and where the church is, there is never loneliness. You are not alone. If you belong to a church, my friend, you're not alone. You're my brother. You can count on me. We can count on, on each other. We need to step out of our individualistic way of thinking. That's Rome thinking, Roman thinking, society thinking, to our collective way of thinking. We are a church. Yeah, We belong to one another. Church is the place also to find encouragement and mutual edification. In verse 11 and 12 it says, I long to see you so that I, might, I, I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is that you and I might be mutual, mutually encouraged by each other's faith. That's how we grow in our faith. Listening to our brother and sister saying, you know, this week I have this problem, but I pray and the Lord did this. Oh my goodness, that helps me to trust more in the Lord. Or receiving the word, because it says the faith comes through hearing the word of God. That's imparting the word. So I invite you to do this. Make a list of four people. If you have 
your paper there, put four names. Four people for which you want to thank God today. Come on, grab a pen. Four people. Four people for which you want to thank God today. Remember, their example of faith and, per, and perseverance. Remember their faith, just like Paul did. After you have the names, you have the names? Yeah? Or at least in your head, okay? Then take a few minutes to pray for those people. Right now, bow down your head and pray and thank God for them. Let's take this moment to pray. Thank the Lord for the people that He had placed in your life. Those who are being an example for you of faith and perseverance. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Amen. The church then is the place to find encouragement and mutual edification. It's in church where we receive instruction for life. Where we learn to be godly children, spouses, and parents. It's in this place where we learn to develop a spirituality, um, healthy ethic of life. You will not learn about moral values in school. Or university or college. doesn't matter if you have a PhD. You will learn all this in the word of God. Where, and where the, the word of God is preached and shared. It's the church. B, second part of the sermon. That was the, the, the nice part. Let's, let's call it like that, okay? You like it? <laughs> Amen. It was all positive, so good. Now comes Romans 1. And it's a controversial chapter. So, are you ready? Buckle up. That's right. I entitled verses 14, 15 in this way. We have the divine obligation of preaching this gospel. We, we know now the gospel, the book of Romans speaks about the gospel, and the gospel is the revelation of God's righteousness. God is love. We all know that, right? Amen? And we trust that. But God is also righteous. He's just. So Romans explain to us how this righteousness of God looks like. And in verses 14 to 15, we're going to read it right now, we're going to, we're going to see God... Um, how, how his righteousness is displayed in the gospel. Romans 1, 14, 15 says. Just a minute. I lost my passage. It says, I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish that is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. Paul received the divine obligation to preach the gospel to everyone. And now, this is not something that Paul only received. The great commission of Jesus Christ. Okay, got it? You know the great commission, right? Matthew 28, Mark 16. The great commission of Jesus Christ. The Sermon on the Mount. Just speaking about passages that we know that they were like highly deep, you know, and, uh, and that we all probably have read. The Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. The parables of the kingdom of God and the instruction to his disciples, Jesus' disciples, show us that the mission of preaching the gospel is not only for pastors, 
and church leaders, but for all disciples of Jesus Christ. Got it? So, look at your hands. Come on, look at your hands. Put it together. Like this. It's time to work. <laughs> All right? It's time to work. This is the time to work for Jesus. To serve Jesus. To, sh to bring someone to church. To invite someone to church. To invite someone to a life group. To share about the Lord to someone. You know? But I don't know the Bible. I didn't have the chance to go to seminary. You don't need it. You only need the Bible. You need to read the Bible. And just speak about what the gospel did in your life. You are a living testimony of the power of the gospel. So share it. Share it. So Paul here was saying, we all need to. We all have the divine obligation of sharing the gospel. Paul accepted this call. Overturned his personal prejudice. Uh, left behind his safety and comfort zone. Did you, did you imagine that it was easy for him to travel across sea to preach the gospel to people that he never met in his life? No. He didn't took any like airplane flight or whatever. It was hard. It was dangerous. He left his comfort zone and preached the gospel with passion both to Greeks and barbarians, both to educated people and also to the foolish. When was the last time you speak about Jesus to someone? When was the last time you shared the, the name Jesus to someone? Maybe saying, you know what? I, I, I'm going to pray for you. Just that. In your workplace or in your family. Or in your neighborhood. That's the thing. We need to open our mouth and speak about Jesus just like Paul did. Now the question is what are your main prejudices with people? Or prejudice with people, you know? I don't like that guy, so I'm not going to speak about Jesus with him. Because I know that he will say no. How you know? Paul says, I'm here to preach the gospel to Greek and barbarians, wise and foolish. White people, brown people, black people, I don't care. I'm preaching the gospel to everyone. Because they need to know. And if I don't preach, woe on me. Now that's the thing. What will happen when you are face to face with Jesus? And Jesus will look straight to your eyes and will say, why, did you, why didn't you open your mouth? To share my name. To speak about me to others. Perhaps our excuse is shame. The Lord knew that the enemy wanted to refrain the believers of Rome in their mission of preaching the gospel. And that's the reason why Paul revealed to them in verse 16. We're going to read it right now. The magnitude and relevance of the gospel. Verse 16 is so powerful. It says... For I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. Everyone. To everyone. I'm not ashamed. If you are ashamed of Jesus in this earth, he will be ashamed of you in heaven. 
That's why we need to realize the urgency of preaching the gospel to everyone. Speaking about Jesus to everyone. Showing the life of Jesus to everyone. We need to do it. We need to deal with it. If you don't deal with that now, how you're, how you're thinking you're going to deal with that in heaven? Man, my friend, I don't know. That's Just give me shivers. Standing before that white throne, the angels, we sing about it all the time. But they're face to face to Jesus. And he asking me, what did you do with my gospel? Did you preach about, about me to your, to your family at least? Oh Jesus, I'm sorry. I was ashamed. How would you feel if your wife is ashamed of you? How would you feel if your husband is ashamed of you? Now think about Jesus' heart. How is he feeling? About you. That's this. That's the gospel. The gospel shows us our grays and dark areas. The gospel is the saving power of God, says, in which the righteousness of God is revealed. The gospel is the message that comes from God to men, transmitted in the power of God, and that produces the transformation of mind and heart. The gospel has the power to deliver the sinner from the prison of sin, freeing him from the judgment of death and condemnation. The gospel is not here just to make you rich. I'll give you possessions. The gospel is here so you can be free from sin and go to heaven. I have eternal life. Abounding life. Not this life that goes and passes by so fast. That's the, the relevance of the gospel. This verse also teaches us that the death of Jesus on the cross meant the just demands of God's holy nature. All the sins of mankind needed to be judged so that death, sin, and Satan will be stripped of all rights over those who enter into the covenant of grace signed between God and humanity on the cross. That's what happened there. So your three enemies, sin, death, and Satan, they have no more rights. Upon you. Or over you. Because you decided to believe in Jesus. And believe in his gospel. And live his gospel. And preach his gospel. So. The question is. How am I going to be ashamed of him. When I know now that he gave everything for me. Sometimes I have the chance of speaking about Jesus to people that was dying. And I was ashamed and I didn't do it. And you know how hard is that now? Knowing that they die without knowing about Jesus Christ? That's the gospel. It's power. It's boldness. And to experience the gospel means to understand that the life of faith that I'm living right now. It's all encompassing. It is by faith that one initially receives the gift of salvation, but it's also by faith that one lives each day. That's the gospel. Paul speaks to the church and says, Look, the gospel is the power of God, and will help you to go through sufferings, will help you to go through storms, through persecution. So you can continue preaching the gospel. And your faith can be still known all over the world. That's the power of the gospel. And I am not ashamed of it. Now from verses 18 to 32. 
Paul speaks about the curse of experiencing condemnation. And this is the state of life that we had before Christ. Before coming to Him. In this covenant of grace, we are enjoying the blessings from God. And we are enjoying now salvation. But there's a lot of people who are not enjoying salvation. And we are not sharing this gift to them. So from verses 18 to 32, we will talk about sinners who have the curse of experiencing condemnation. Just as faith in Jesus produces salvation for the believer in the life of one who refuses to surrender under the lordship of Christ, sin produces condemnation. God's wrath is righteously revealed because people suppress the truth about the one true God and turn to idolatry. The consequence, of, the consequence of idolatry is the moral dis- disintegration of human society. Our society, it is in this state right now because of idolatry. Because we follow other idols. Ourselves, ego, money, you name it. Paganism, other religions, you name it. In verse 18 it says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. So, so who is going to judge what is going on in the world right now? God himself. His wrath. It's against them. It says, Who suppresses the truth by their wickedness? The wrath of God refers to his personal anger against sin. God's anger is not selfish or arbitrary, but represents His holding and loving response to human weaknesses. Human wickedness, sorry. Now, man's sin will always lead him to suppress, censor, and turn away from the truth of the gospel. They would not like to hear this message. I don't know how many of us would like to hear this message again. (laughs) To be honest. Hey, honey... How was church? Awesome. We learned about God's wrath. (laughs) It's the gospel. Verse 19 to 20 says, Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made, made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from, understood, sorry, from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. Oh no, nobody came to me to talk about Jesus. Well, you're, you have no excuse before God. He's calling you anyways. God's wrath is expressed for good reasons since His power and divine nature are clearly revealed through the world He has made. And yet, He's rejected by all people. Now, the problem of man, listen to me, is not the lack of evidence about the existence of God and His plan of salvation. No, there is lots of evidence creation, our, 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 our own conscience, you know, everything. The, the history of faith, you can name it. You can go to archaeological, whatever you want to go, any science to try to prove the gospel. But the, the thing is this, the problem of man is not the lack of evidence. The problem of man is unbelief. Unbelief. And unbelief is a matter of the heart, it's not a matter of the mind. 
Sin produces hardness of heart and an open rejection of God and His love. In verses 21 and 23 to 23 it says, For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. He's speaking about Gentiles in that time. Right now, I don't know if you, if you know someone having an idol with the shape of a bird or animal, you know, or a dog, whatever, and trying to worship that. No, we have other idols. C.S. Lewis used to say, the demons are the same. The only thing that changes is the, is the idol, is the image. You know, the figure. The root of sin is the failure to value God above all things, so that He's not honored and praised as He should be. That's the root of sin. When your worship stops, your sinful nature starts to increase. Ingratitude and irreverence are two of the strongest characteristics that a person without fear of God has. And our society knows that God exists. They can see the evidence in everything He has created. Yet, they don't know that they need to be saved by God from sin and death. And why they don't know? Because we don't tell them. We don't tell them. Verse 22 shows us that even brilliant people who do not honor God miss the whole purpose of life and, and are therefore fools. Verse 23 Speaks about idolatry. So let me tell you this. Idolatry is the fundamental sin. The opposite of Christianity is not atheism. Not at all. The opposite and the enemy number one of Christianity is idolatry. In all, their, in all its shapes and forms. Idolatry. Modern idols don't look like ancient ones. But people still devote their lives to and trust in and many things other than God. Believers in Christ Jesus do not worship idols or images because we understand that we ourselves are the image of God. That's how we were created. Genesis, remember? We were created at the image of God. Rather, we worship Jesus who is the very image of God. In Greek, his name is Akon. He is the image of God. He even said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. That's why we worship Jesus. I only worship him, not idols. The church only worship Jesus, not idols. We don't worship creation, we worship the creator. The creator. Verse, uh, verses 24 to 25. Therefore God gave them, gave them over in the sinful desires of the hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. And they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. Listen to me. They exchanged the truth... They decided to believe, not the truth, but a lie. And worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. Three times Paul says God gave them up. In verse 24, 26, and 28. In every instance, the giving up to sin is a result of idolatry. It's not because he's, he's, a, bad, he's a bad God. No. He wants the best for you. He created you. But he's trying to call your attention. All individual sins are a consequence of the failure to acknowledge and praise God as the giver of every good thing. The rejection of God has led sinful men to worship themselves. 
In this sense, hedonism is the rule of this society. The hedonists hold that the end and foundation of life is self-satisfaction and the pursuit of self-pleasure. All the commercials you watch on TV, everything that is produced there for the market, for mass market, has this behind, hedonism. Everything for you so you can feel good about yourself, you can feel good and, and, you know, and... You can sense that everything is good with you, your family. That's all that matters if you feel good. Hedonism. Would you say with me that our society is a little bit hedonistic? <laughs> a little bit? <laughs> That's our culture. So in a way, the Roman culture is our Western culture. We inherit this. Yeah. We hear this. It's all about you. Hedonism. So, the Roman society was hedonistic at, at its very essence. It's, it's not surprising then that the rejection of God and his order led society to embrace different sinful lifestyles. As verse 25 points out, the person blinded by his sin rejects the truth of God to accept, defend, and propagate the lie that he himself, in his ignorance of God, has accepted as a truth. And right now, in the, in the era we live, social area, it's worse. Everybody needs to know what I'm, what I'm doing. Everybody needs to do my lifestyle, about my lifestyle. So I go to Facebook, I go there and there, and I speak to everybody about what I'm doing. I'm not ashamed of that. It's who I am. That's a lie. You are just involved in a hedonistic society that is just gripping you and you don't realize what is about to come. Verses 26 to 27. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed. Look at this word. Inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. In these verses, we are not talking only about homosexual acts, but also about such passions or desires, what the NIV translates as shameful lust. That are said to be dishonorable before God. So we can speak about other sins besides homosexuality. We can speak about having sex before marriage. That's called fornication. We, we can speak about adultery. We can speak about pornography, masturbation, prostitution, orgies, and any other sexual perversion. That's what Paul is speaking right here. So Paul is saying in society, sex is being attacked. Sexuality, as God created it, is being attacked. And we're speaking about the society in Rome over 2,000 years ago. It's the same right now. It's the same right now. Just as idolatry is unnatural, because you were created to worship God, not worship the creation or yourself. You were created to worship the creator. So the natural will be worship God. The unnatural is not worshiping God. That's unnatural. So, just in the same way, homosexuality is, co is contrary to nature in that it does not represent what God intended when he made men and women with physical bodies. 
that have a natural way of interacting with each other and natural desires for each other. It's not normal. It's not natural. You were not born like that. You're just accepting, believing, and propagate, um, propagating to everyone a lie. A lie. A demonic lie. Genesis 1-2 reveals the divine pardon, the divine sorry pardon for human beings, indicating that God's will is for men and women to be joined in marriage. And the word that Paul used, inflamed, in verse 27, gives a strong image of a powerful but destructive inward desire. Inflame. Like the fires in BC, something started, right? Inflame everything. That's what happened when you give space, give, when, when you give yourself to sin. You're being inflamed by sin. The sin in view here is men engaging in sin with men and women engaging in sin with women. There's no justification here for the view that Paul condemns only abusive homosexual relationships, as in some theological and evangelical circles right now is being taught. We need to know scripture. We need to know the truth. This is what the Bible says. No, it's not my opinion. It's God's opinion on this subject. Verses 28 to 32, and we finish. It says, furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent. Arrogant and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They, dis- they disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, and no mercy. Go and try to find a gay couple, a homosexu- uh, homosexuals living together, even, even if they're married, that they can say, well... We have fidelity, love, and mercy. We live for one another. The highest rate, you have no idea, the highest rate of suicide that they have. So that's what sin does. It says that this, the people that gave themselves to sin suffers this. No fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although, verse, verse 32, Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. And we, the church, we don't approve this sinful lifestyle. Human sin is not confined to sexual sins only. And Paul now gives a whole list of the evils common among human beings as a result of turning from God. While the believer has the mind of Christ, the unbeliever has a uh, depraved mind which leads him to think, decide, do, and say things that only do him and others harm. Paul says that the person who rejects God is filled with these things. What sin can do in a person, brother, sister, has no limits. In Genesis 2.17, we see God warning Adam and Eve 
that the immediate and, tr- and transcendental consequence of sin is death. Now, different theologians all, all over the ages have, have spoken about three kinds of death. The physical death, the spiritual death, and the eternal death. I'm not saying that if you decided to reject God and continue living a lifestyle of sin, whatever, you're going to go out there and, I don't know, I had an accident and die. I'm not saying that. I'm saying what the Bible speaks about death. The Bible says that death is separation from God. That's death. Okay? Separation from God and life. So there are three kinds of death. Physical, spiritual, and eternal. When you are born... You are born death in your spirit. That's, one, that's why when the gospel comes, the gospel is light and bring light to your spirit so you can be resurrected with Christ. Just as Romans 6, we're going to learn about this later, speaks about. But it's something that we need to know. God has been speaking about this in Genesis. Understanding that the word death in the Bible denotes not an end, but a state of separation with God and life. The Bible closes with this warning made a reality in the near future in the book of Revelations. Revelations speaks about the eternal damnation of the devil, his demons, and all those who have rejected the love of God to continue living in their sins. That's what Paul says, those who do such things, who practice these things. It's not about believing in my mind. Oh, one time I came to the front and said, Jesus, I accept you, and then I went back to continue living my hedonistic lifestyle. No. Speaking about receiving the gospel here in your heart and your spirit. It says in the book of Revelations. That all who have rejected the love of God to continue living in their sins. They will be thrown into a place. That the Bible calls the lake of fire or the second death. Now people do not generally sin in innocent ignorance. For they know God's righteous decree. At least in an. In, I don't know. Instinctive way. That their evil deserves condemnation. Indeed, the evil goes further when people give approval and applaud others for their sin. Probably because having others join in their sin makes them feel better about the evil curse they have chosen. And sadly, this is the general state of the world we live in. A world that desperately needs to hear and experience the power of the gospel. We ought to preach and live. 32 verses in 40-something minutes or maybe more. Um, I'm just... Uh, when, I, I, when I was preparing the sermon, I was like, oh God. In, on one side, I'm so thankful because of the cross, because of the gospel that have transformed my life and now I know that I'm safe. And, I, and now I can follow you. I'm not perfect. But I can trust in you. And I can pursue holiness. With all that that takes. That will mean make, making sacrifices. That will mean, I don't know, receiving mockery. Because of what I believe. Being mocked. I'm even rejected. But Lord, on the other hand, I'm seeing this society and I'm watching the news. And I'm looking at my neighbors. They are all lost. What am I going to do? And it's not just enough exposing your word on Sunday morning to fellow Christians. 
It's about training them to go out there and transform and change lives through the gospel. That's why you're here, right? That's why you're here today. God, just like we opened this sermon, God is calling you to be his servant, to preach his gospel. And my question is, will you rise up to preach the gospel even knowing that this may cost you a lot? Maybe it will cost you a job, money, fame, a name. Not all the people will like you. They will talk about you. They will turn their backs on you. But Jesus will never do that to you. Will you rise up to preach the gospel even in the midst of opposition, mocking and threats? With everything that is going on in the world right now? When literally being a Christian can cost you your life in other countries. Standing up and saying to your Muslim family, I'm a Christian. That means instantly rejection. Social rejection, and it can cost you your life. Well, no, we live in our precious Canada. Nothing happened like that here. They were saying the same in Spain and all over Europe. And now they're suffering. And I'm not here to infound fear. I'm here to encourage you to leave the gospel that you claim you believe. When the night is advanced, even the smallest flame shines stronger. The light of the gospel we preach will always prevail over this present darkness. Remember that we are not supposed to only preach the gospel, but also live it. And I'm going to leave you with this last phrase. I don't know if we have it on the screen. Your faith and integrity are the witnesses of the power of the gospel that, speaks, that Paul speaks about in Romans 1.17. That the world... Needs to see your faith, integrity will open doors for you to share about to, to share Jesus. Don't be ashamed of Jesus Christ. Keep yourself pure and free from sin, and bring the truth of the gospel to those who are living in error today. Amen. This is the challenge that the Romans one brought to us today. So I invite you to pray. I invite you to bow down your head. Have a, a moment. Meditate on the word. Meditate on everything that you heard today. The Holy Spirit wants to speak to you personally now. Close your eyes. Think about your reality. Think about your present life. Maybe you have been living a lie. And today your life is being exposed to the truth of the gospel. You know what Jesus said about the truth? You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. There is grace and freedom in Jesus Christ. No condemnation. Forgiveness. Love. Today the Lord is calling you also to, to be bold. And speak about him to others. And I pray that the Lord will put in your heart right now. The name of a few fellows. Or, I don't know, co-workers or family members that need to hear the gospel. 
And I pray that He will give you the boldness and the power and the grace to share the love of Jesus to them. There's no other name. Jesus. His name is salvation. His name is forgiveness. His name is love. Heavenly Father, I pray right now that you bless your church. Bless us, Lord, and thank you for your word that we have received today. I pray that you help us to get rid of any shame in our lives. Lord, forgive, forgive our sins because we have been ashamed of you so many times. Right now, I pray, Lord, that you will stir up our hearts to be bold. That you will give us the strength and the opportunity to share your gospel to others. Not only through our words, but also through, mainly through our lives, through our faith and integrity. Lord, we pray for this world where we are. We, we pray, Lord, for our society that is in darkness. We believe that you are the light. And where there is the light, there is no darkness. We pray that you, Jesus, will, will go and impact every part of our society here in Calgary, here in the Northwest area all our nation and the world because you are returning you're coming back and we want to be ready and we want to be Lord wasting our lives for your gospel for your cause not to build our kingdom to build your kingdom on earth I bless you in the name of Jesus